This morning we are coming to the next to the last word of eight words we've been studying this summer. If this is your first time with us, we have selected for June and July a set of words that we believe every Christian ought to know and ought to have some understanding of. And today the word we're going to be looking at is the word judgment. He has the final say. Now up to this time we've talked about uh, things that we look at and we can just simply thank God for His grace and for His mercy. Judgment truly for the Christian is no different. We'll see that shortly. But judgment also has much to say to that person that doesn't know Christ. You know, if we walk back there to the nursery this morning and we set a couple of kids aside, we went into the room and we divided it up and we gave to one group of kids we gave them big bowls of ice cream with chocolate syrup on it, cherry on top. And to the other group of kids, we said, just watch. If they're able to talk, if you go to the right classroom, they can speak, not only ambulatory, but they, they have vocal skills. One of the things you will hear from them is a loud complaint. And as they get a lot older, they'll tell you, that's not fair. Because innate in every human heart, there's a sense of justice. It may not be God's justice, but there's a sense of justice. And we have a sense of right and wrong and a sense of fairness. And the judgment is ultimately when you and I encounter that in the Lord himself. He has the final say. We may judge ourselves to be pretty good people. We may judge other people to be not so good. We may be critical, we may evaluate others, we may evaluate ourselves, but the only evaluation in the end that matters is the Lord's. And so as we look at this word today, we're going to do with it as we've done with each of them. I'm going to ask three questions. What is judgment? What does judgment tell us about the Father? What does it tell us about God, His character? And then how should judgment affect the way that I live? And in that way, we make it as practical as we can. And so let's take up that first question. I'm going to move through these first two questions pretty quickly. Number one, what is judgment? What is judgment? Let me give you the definition that I hammered out this week. Definition. Judgment is that final future encounter with the justice of God that causes all individuals to recognize two things. That causes them all to recognize their accountability to Him for the conduct of their lives. Secondly, to receive from him a just reward or penalty as a consequence for their thoughts, words, and actions. Now, the Bible consistently, even in the Old Testament as well as the New, refers to the judgment as occurring on a particular day. And it will refer to it as the day. Now, it may add the other things to it, the day of the Lord, the last day, the final day, the day of God. But it is always referred to as the day. And for ancient believers in Yahweh and for followers of Jesus Christ, there really were only two days on their calendar. Today and that day. Two days. And so I want to, as we think about this definition, I just want to pause for a second and look at some descriptions of the day of judgment that I find particularly significant. The first I'm going to just refer to the day of the Lord. The day belongs to God. 
When that day comes, it is entirely about him. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, the prophet writes, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now, can you use your imagination a little bit? It says his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. It goes on and says, A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. That is the most awful moment in history. And no one says anything. At that moment, as the judgment unfolds, every person who's ever lived is standing there before God, and no one is saying anything. Silence. It's the day of the Lord. It's also the day of accountability to the king. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and on those, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus returns, he will be ushering in the kingdom of God. And he comes as a king. And what every human being, living or dead, discovers on that day is they realize, they recognize their accountability to him. There'll be no argument about it. There'll be no discussion about it. It wasn't about my life. It was about him and what I was supposed to do with my life. And so there's this accountability to the king. I will recognize he is the king. I will recognize he is the Lord. I will recognize that he has and always has had the right to rule my knee. And I'll confess Jesus is Lord. So there's the day of the Lord. There's the day of accountability. It's also the day of your final destiny. No more questions or wonderment about it. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And then at the end of this description it says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Some people refer to this as the judgment of the nations. I understand why they say that, but it is not a judgment of nations. The nations are gathered, but we are separated out as individuals. It won't matter who your mother was, or your daddy, or your grandparents. They may have loved Jesus, but it's not going to matter who they were. It's not going to matter what family you came from, what ethnicity you have. None of that will matter. And you will be judged as an individual. And your destiny, your destiny, everlasting punishment, eternal life, will be settled on that day. Now, this is the teaching of the Word of God. It's not something I'm making up. And this has been the consistent teaching of the Scripture. 
both in the Old and in the New Testament. And so this day, there is a majesty to it. There is an awesomeness to it. And we can't take it lightly. So the two things that are happening, we become aware of our accountability, his right to rule in our lives, and we receive a just reward or penalty for every thought, every action, every word that we've ever done. Second question, what does judgment tell us about God? Study this summer, we are taking a 45,000 foot flyover. There are so many things that we could say about the judgment, what it says about God. Many of them are things we've already looked at. It talks about, we could talk about God and his justice. We could talk about God and his holiness, how he's totally, totally set apart from sin and totally different from you and me. We talk about those things, but I just want to pull, call attention to two things. First, he includes everyone. There's no partiality with God. It actually says that in Romans 2. He includes everyone. There is not a person in this room who will not be included in that final judgment. But it's more than that. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, John writes, And I saw the dead, small and great. Now, I don't know if small and great is in, in the sense of how God sees them or the way they see themselves or the way others see them. But the point is, whatever system you apply to it, all of them are there. The great ones, the famous, the infamous, the, the unknown, all of them are there, small and great. And there's no, there are no little pedestals there where, where some people get to stand a little higher than everybody else. It's all flat before the throne. And they're standing there, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. What do you imagine is in those books? The record of, of your entire life. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And these are the ones who have trusted Christ, and we'll say more about that later. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. So how does God reconstitute someone who was in an explosion and there's nothing left bigger than a, a penny of that person? How does he handle that? How does he handle people who were lost at sea? In the ancient mind, there was no recovering that person lost at sea. They're, they're at the very bottom of the ocean. What does God do that? Well, the answer is here. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. They were judged. He includes everyone. And so that person that you know doesn't know God will be there. Every person you know will be there. People you did not know will be there. Some of you, like me, you like to, to, to putter with dead relatives and, and on ancestry. You like to find all these dead relatives. They'll be there. They're relatives I can't find. He knows who they are. They'll all be there. Every friend, every family member, every politician, every person in authority, every national head, every scientist, every artist, every actor, every actress, every, uh, every influential person, every unknown person, all of them will be there. He includes everyone. Second observation is that he overlooks nothing. He includes everyone and he overlooks nothing. He's looking at every thought. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is in the midst of an argument explaining that every person is coming under judgment. The Jewish person who has received the law of God 
and who knows exactly what is on the heart of God for their life, that person will come under judgment. The person, the Gentile, who's never heard of the Ten Commandments, never heard the law of God, they also will come under judgment. He explains it's because of their thought life. He says it's because of the way they think. Every person, even that little child, has a standard of right and wrong. And they either conform to that standard or they disobey that standard. And they will be judged in a way that I understand because it's God who's doing the judging. God is impartial, but he is fair, and he will do the right thing. And he looks at that individual's thoughts. And it says in Romans 2, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day, there it is, the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. What are the secrets? Their thoughts. Their thoughts. He overlooks nothing. He also looks at every word, every word we speak. I don't know about you, but I like to pick on Dustin. Amen. My first amen this morning, brother. And, um, and sometimes, you know, I'm kidding with someone. Have you ever done this? I'm sure nobody else has ever done this. You kid someone, and you go a little bit too far. Say something you shouldn't have said. That happens with me and my wife all the time. I know immediately when I said the wrong thing because my point bucket just went dry. Okay? Every word, God pays attention to those words that we speak. And those words matter. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, But I say to you that for every idle word, you can say, I didn't mean it, God. For every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Every thought, every word, and then every action. He overlooks nothing. He looks at every action. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all, this is Christians, non-Christians alike, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the bottom line, pulling this together, what does this tell us about God? It tells me that everything I, I think or say or do matters to God. Some of you are sitting here, you're thinking, my life doesn't matter to God. Your entire life matters to God. Everything about you matters to God. He, he loves you. The Bible says he loves the world. That includes you. Loves everyone that's ever lived. And he cares about everything in your life and everything that you're doing. Every expression, every thought, every word, he cares. Now, the third question is where we need to spend a little bit more time. And each week I find that we find that I need to spend more question on more time on one question or another. Here's the one we need to pay attention to. Especially if you're here today and you're a Christian. You consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ. Number three, how should judgment affect the way I live? How should judgment affect the way I live? If I'm a non-Christian, judgment should cause me to run to Jesus. And, and we'll make that more clear in just a moment. But I, if I understand judgment's coming, I'm going to be accountable for my life. And I know that my life is not what it should have been, not what it should be. 
I got to deal with my sin. I got to deal with my conscience. I got to deal with my guilt. I should be running to Christ. But if you're a Christian today, you've already trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. How should judgment affect the way that you live? Well, I want to stress, first of all, this. In Romans 14, verse 10, and this is a passage addressed to Christians who are judging one another. And by the way, you shouldn't judge another Christian. You shouldn't judge non-Christians. Judging in the sense of passing judgment on their life, passing judgment on their behavior. Why? Because we're all going to stand before God, and only one is qualified to make a judgment like that. And so in Romans 14, verse 10, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 12, So then each of us, here it is, shall give account of himself to God. Now that's spoken to Christians. That means when my life is over, or if Jesus comes back and I'm still alive, and I stand with all the human race, every person that's ever lived, and I stand before God, my moment will come. I will give an account to God for my life. There's no exemption from that. There's no escaping that. Sometimes I think, well, I'm saved. I have nothing to worry about. Well, you are going to face a judgment. As a Christian, I can say this this morning. You have nothing to be afraid of if you know Christ. You have nothing to fear because of your relationship with him. If you're walking with him, you love him, you know he loves you. The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear in 1 John 4. And it says we know that love has been perfected in us when we have boldness in the day of judgment. That I go on the day of judgment and I realize that my judge is also my savior. My judge is the one I've trusted and I have walked with him and I have loved him and I have listened to him throughout the course of my life. And so in that sense, I have a relationship with the judge. I have an inside track. I have nothing to fear. But it's more than just the relationship. It's because my sins have already been judged. When God forgives you as a Christian, your sins are no more. In Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? It's infinite. And so my sins have been removed. Micah 7, 19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. They didn't believe anything could come back from that. Hebrews 8, verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That's God speaking. And so when judgment comes, why don't I have to be afraid? Why is our judgment so very different from the rest of humanity? Why can we go into it with boldness? Why can we go into it with no fear? Why can we go to it with, with confidence? The answer is the cross. The believer's sins have already been judged. We're not getting a free pass. We were guilty. We deserved eternal and everlasting punishment. But our sins were taken to the cross by Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so there's a sense in which judgment day happened at the cross. And every person who goes to Christ, every person who trusts Jesus Christ, your sins, that part of judgment, has already happened for you. And you have passed from death to life. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, More surely I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. 
and shall not come in the judgment, but has passed from death into life. You've already passed that part. And so for you, the judgment of your sins is already done, complete, finished. Your sins have been carried away from you as far as the east from the west. He says, I remember them no more. Are you saying, Pastor, does it, are you saying it doesn't matter now that if I sin as a Christian? Sure it matters. The Bible makes it very clear that when I sin, it, it um, affects my fellowship and my communion with God. That when I sin and just reject the Holy Spirit's prompting in my life, I can grieve the Holy Spirit. When He's wanting me to do something and I say no, I can quench the Holy Spirit. I can wound the Holy Spirit. And so what does that do to my, my relationship with God? Is He no longer my Father? Am I no longer His child? No, that part never changes. But my fellowship with God, my intimacy with God, my communion with God is dramatically affected. And it's important that every day, as Jesus taught us to do, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I need to keep short accounts with God. I want to have intimacy with Him. And you can't draw near to a holy God without the holiness of God lighting up everything in your life that's not holy. And so, and so sin is serious business. Seri sin is so serious that God sent His Son to die for your sin. But dear one, in terms of the judgment and your sins being judged and your destiny being established, that has already happened if you have trusted Jesus Christ and His work for you at the cross. It is finished. It is done. That's why Paul later writes in Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you walk around, you always feel guilty, you feel like God's mad at you, that God's thrown you under the bus. Some days you feel like a Christian, some days you don't. Listen, the Bible says there is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You may feel badly, but the truth about you, the truth about your relationship to God is that you're his son, you're his daughter if you've trusted Jesus Christ. So if I'm already forgiven for my sins, the Bible says I've got to give an account of my life on the day of judgment. What is left? What does that mean for me as a Christian? If my sins have already been judged, us are going to give an account before God. So what does that mean? The answer is found in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. And dear one, I would encourage you to take this passage, take it home. I would look at it every day this week as, as a church family. I would look at it. I would pray about it. I would think about it, not in terms of how it applies to the pastor, not how it applies to everybody else, but how it applies to you. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. Listen to what Paul writes. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. So Paul says, I came, saying, essentially, I preached the gospel, I laid the foundation. Others are building on it. Who's building on it? But let each one take heed how he builds on it. That's you and me. If I know Christ, my foundation is Jesus. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he is my foundation. And my whole life, I stand on him. 
I stand on who he is. I stand on what he's done for me. He stood between me and the wrath of God. He took away the wrath of God provoked by my sin. He's the propitiations for my sin. He has redeemed me. He paid the price to set me free. He, he has set me free from the bondage of sin. He has reconciled me to the Father, the very thing causing the breach in the relationship between me and God. He's removed my sin. Jesus, I go on and on, Jesus is your foundation. And we are secure because of Christ and what he's done for us. But now, what comes next? You see, some of us think, well, I trusted Jesus in 1901. Anybody here? And um, I trusted Jesus, and so I don't have anything left to do. I'm going to heaven. My destiny's certain. Everything's taken care of. And so, and so we just sort of sit back, and we don't really think we have to do anything else. Anything else matters. We don't understand. No other foundation can be laid, which, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, that's you and me, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Answering the question. So what is the judgment about for the Christian? It means that this judgment at this moment for the Christian has nothing to do with his or her sins. It has everything to do with your service. Remember last week we talked about sanctification, the process of being made holy. And how when you trusted Jesus, you were sanctified forever, set apart from sin, set apart for the exclusive service of God. That's why we call each other saints, or we should. To all the saints in win. They've been set apart. We are the holy ones. Not because we're perfect, but because we've been set apart for God's service. And so this judgment is not about our sins at this anymore. Our sins have been judged. This is about our service and what we have done with our lives as a son or daughter of God. It's about rewards. It's not about your destiny. Even the person who's got nothing left, I mean, they were a total washout. As a servant of God, it says he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It's not about our destiny. It's about rewards. And the curious thing about this is obviously there are degrees of rewards. Now, there's a lot of theological speculation. If you go to a school, seminary, where they study these things, people trying to figure out what are the rewards, you know. Let's just leave that with God, okay? But we know there's degrees. Some people got nothing left. Others, they did something, and we're going we're to talk about how, why, what they did. But they did something, and they got something left that was made of gold or silver or precious stones. But the other stuff burned up. And as a consequence of that, some people got more 
on the foundation to reward than others. There are degrees of punishment described in Scripture. I really don't understand that. To me, how much worse can hell be? But the Bible speaks of it. And I say, leave that with God. The question I have is, are you building in a way that has value in eternity? Are you, as Jesus talks about in Matthew, are you laying up for yourself treasures in heaven? And if so, how? So now we come to the answer to this question. How should the judgment affect the way that I live? Let me give you three words, and then we'll, I got something to show you, and then we're going to close. The first way judgment should affect the way I live is in my motive, my motive for living. And here's the question, am I serving him? Colossians chapter 3 gives us an example of what I'm talking about. Verse 22, bond servants or slaves or employees or workaday people, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. So when the boss is in the office or the boss is out of the office, doesn't matter, you do the same thing. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Sometimes I, I sit with individuals, and I've wrestled with this myself. I've, I've been in a secular workplace, worked in an engineering firm for several years. And there, there are times when I wasn't happy, times when I wasn't having a good day, times when I didn't like my boss. And you know what I discovered the best way to solve that problem? Get a new boss. <laughs> but the way Paul talks about it in Colossians, he says, do it as unto the Lord, not that boss. Do it as unto the Lord. Do it for Christ. What matters at the end of time is how you serve Jesus. Serve Jesus in that workplace. Serve Jesus in that assignment. Do it as unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. It's not about that paycheck. not about whether I got a raise. It's about Jesus. Matthew 7 also speaks to this issue of motive. Verse 21, Jesus writes something that I believe we ought to be taking very seriously in case we're deceiving ourselves. Matthew 7, verse 21, Father in heaven, say, okay, what's the will of God? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, preached, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Now, that sounds like the will of God to me. I mean, we haven't even done some of those things around here lately. Maybe we should. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Obviously, he sees more than their activity. Sees more than their religious activity, more than their outward works. He's looking deeper. He's looking at their relationship to God. They don't have one. I never knew you, he says. There's no relationship. How can they do the will of God if they don't know God? How can they do the thing that God has for them to do if they don't know him? And they are living as if there's, there were no rules, no law, no king, no ruler in their life. They practice lawlessness. That, that concept there is like the word outlaw in the Old West. They lived outside of the law. They were outside of the will, the direction, and a relationship with God. And so the motive that God looks at, I believe is so critical in this judgment of believers, is what's going on in my heart. It's not important enough that I do the right thing. 
It's that, why did I do it? Did I do it out of this relationship? Did I do it because I cared about the will of God? If I care about the will of God, it means I want to please Him more than I want to please me. He looks at the motive of our heart, why we did the things we do. If my motive was not about my love for Him, my relationship with Him, I can guarantee you, you can, on the outside, and you look at it and say, what a great guy. When I hit that moment, those works that I did, without, without that motive, like a flash fire, just gone. That work is gone. Secondly, the word motive. The second word is mission. How the judgment should affect my life. It should affect my mission in life. Am I doing the work he has for me to do? In Acts 13, verse 2, here's an example. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now you say, well, that was the Apostle Paul. You think God doesn't have a work for you to do? God has things for you to do. You, you can be really busy in church and not be about the work that God has for you to do. He has specific works for specific individuals. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's, I'm not talking about good, good deedism. I'm talking about specific assignments and tasks that God has for you to do. You were created for that, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know what that means? I can spend 20 years of my life giving myself to a job and miss the will of God. I can have a career. I can be successful on paper. Everybody can say I'm a good guy. I can go to church every Sunday and still miss God, the heart of God for my life. He's made you for something. He has something for you to do. You should do it as unto the Lord. You should do it out of your relationship. But do you know what it is? Do you know what he's called you to do? Do you know what he's made you for? That may evolve over time as he gives you specific assignments, different things to do, but he has things for you to do. I'm not asking you to make up something. I'm not asking you to worry about this. I'm saying the next time you know God wants you to do something, do it. Do it. We'll say more about that in a moment. And then the third area that should be affected in our life by the judgment is my method, the way I live my life. I need to do it out of a relationship. My motive should be to love him. My mission should be to fulfill all that God made me for, to do everything that God had in mind for me to do when he saved me. That's my mission. But the method, the method is not to just go out and do it any old way. There's a very specific way he wants us to live. You see, in the Old Testament, the way they had to live was they had the commandments, and they were written down, and they were on the wall, and I read, thou shalt not, and I say, okay, God, I won't do that. And then I, there are other commandments that say, you should do this, and I say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be kind to my animals, kind to strangers, whatever. And they failed. You can't live that way and please God. If you could live that way, if you could do all the right things and please God, Jesus would not have needed to die on the cross. The Bible calls that the old covenant. There's a new covenant now. The new covenant is that God puts inside every Christian his Holy Spirit, and he is there to supply to you all the direction you need and all the power you need to fulfill God's work that he's assigned to you. So how you do it is important. I believe a key passage on this is John 15, where Jesus talks about abiding in 
Him. We studied this last fall. But to abide in Christ literally means to stay in Christ, to, to be with Him, to walk with Him. He becomes your environment, and, and both on the outside of you, wherever you go, He is your environment, and also internally, He is your environment. And Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me stays like a branch stays in a vine. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. How many things can you do without Jesus? How many things can you do without Jesus? Nothing. Nothing is a zero with the rim kicked off, one preacher said. Nothing. And then verse 8 he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. How can I bear fruit? So much of the time, you and I focus on trying to be fruit bearers instead of abiders. Jesus said, you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. And so much of the time, we worry about the fruit production. We don't worry enough about abiding. Making Jesus my home, making him my environment. Paul talks about walking in the Spirit, same thing. Walking in the Spirit. Letting him be your environment. Letting him guide you, letting him prompt you. Not enough just to love him. Not enough just to have the right mission, know the work. I need to do it with his power that he supplies and the leadership that he provides. Do you know that the Holy Spirit wants to lead you in your life? That he wants to guide you into the things God has for you to do and wants to give you everything you need to do it? Beth Moore is probably the most popular Bible teacher for women in our country right now. And a lot of you ladies have probably heard this particular story that she shares in her own testimony. But she talks about being at an airport and seeing a man who was in a wheelchair that a hostess wheeled up to the gate, and he had terribly dirty, stringy, messed up hair, fingernails that were real long, and all that kind of stuff. And God told her to do something. I want you to watch this. And when I look over at him, he was the oddest sight. He looked like he was not one iota less than about 129, and I'm not kidding. This was the oldest looking person I had ever seen. Not only that, but he had gray hair that was down to here. His fingernails were every bit as long as mine. He was clean, but it was just an odd sight. His pants, it looked like that he had obviously lost a lot of weight because they were just bunched up. I'll never forget how he looked, and he was just, his head was just hanging down like this, and his hair was in strings like this, huh? This is how much God thinks of us just memorizing Scripture but not do anything with it. Because the Lord begins to compel my heart. Overwhelms me. Overwhelms me. Well, I have learned. I've walked with him a long time. I knew by now. That is scary. God is up to something when he is overwhelming your heart like that. And I just thought, oh, please, God, no. Oh, please. Please, God, no. Because I'm already knowing he wants me to witness to this man. And so I say to myself in my spirit, now I'm not talking out loud, but in my spirit I'm talking to God silently, and I'm, saying, I'm sure my mouth is going. <laughs> because I say to him, do not make me witness to that man. And now I'm going to tell you, as clear as I'm talking to you now, the Lord spoke to my heart. Then very few times I've ever heard God be this articulate with me. And I'm telling you word for word, these words came into my heart. I'm not asking you to witness to him. I'm asking you to brush his hair. Lord, that man needs witnessing to. What 
good is combed hair. If a man is lost, and I can tell, Lord, that man, I am your witness. I am your witness. I am your witness. I am your, I am your girl. Me. Me. I got the plan. I got the Roman road. Amen. Still in my heart. I mean, we are just having a fight. I didn't tell you to witness to him. I told you to brush his hair. I thought, I don't have a hairbrush. You know, I fixed my hair. And then it's done for the day until I unfix it. And the brush is in the luggage. You understand what I'm saying to you? So I said, I don't even have a hairbrush. And I, the Lord's still compelling me. Come out. So I get up, walk over, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't even have a hairbrush. You know, I was supposed to be thoroughly equipped under all good work. I do not have a hairbrush. <laughs> I walk over, I get right in front of the man. His head's hanging down like this. I lean down like this. I said, sir, may I have the honor of brushing your hair? And he says, what? <laughs> a little louder. Sir, may I have the honor of brushing your hair? He goes, well, lady, if you want me to hear you, you're going to have to speak up. Sir, may I have the privilege of brushing your hair? To which everyone in the airport goes, whoa. <laughs> And every, I can feel every eye just piercing me just like this. And I'm just humiliated. And he looks at me and says, if you want to. And I'm going, I don't. I don't want to. I went, yes, sir. I would absolutely love to. But my problem is, I don't have a hairbrush. He says, I have a hairbrush. He said, it's back in my bag. So I go all the way around the wheelchair. His bag is on the back of it like this. I get down on my knees. I unzip this little duffel bag, and I start pulling out his clean undershirts, his pair of pajamas, all sorts of things. And as I do, I cannot tell you the feeling that overwhelms me. I am just flooded with the love of Christ. I found the hairbrushes. One of those real old uh, bristle ones doesn't look anything like our, our brushes do now. And, and when I stood up, I, I began then. I went over to him and I thought, you know, to tell you the truth, this is what I'm good at. I had two girls. I'm good at this. So I just came and I just began to brush his hair and it was so matted that I couldn't even believe it. And so I had to get down to the very bottom of it and I, I just brushed the very ends of it. And then just a little bit, I took us forever. And I want to tell you, I was oblivious to everybody else in that room. At that point, nobody else was alive to me. I just kept brushing and kept brushing until that hair was as smooth as silk. I went back around to him and and squatted down in front of him, put my hands on his hands. They were on his knees. His head was just like that. And I said, sir, do you know Jesus? And he said, yes, I do. I said, well, of course you do. <laughs> that figures. I wanted to share the gospel with you. But no, you need your hair brushed. And he told me that his old bride of so many years would not marry him until he came to know Christ. And he said, I was just sitting here thinking to myself, and he wept. I'm about to cry telling you. He said, I was just sitting here thinking, what a mess I must be for my bride. He'd been in that hospital for months, and he was about to return back home. Nobody had cut his hair or anything. I don't know how long it had been since he'd been brushed. That hostess came and put him on the plane, and she came back out, and she was crying. I mean, hard. And she said, what made you do that? And I said, Jesus. 
He's the bossiest thing. <laughs> she did need Christ, so I did get to talk to her. She knows what our need is. Man didn't need witnessing to. He needed his hair brushed. When we are filled to the measure with the fullness of Christ, you sweet thing, you cannot believe the needs we can meet. We can do what we know we can. And while you're doing it, you're just thinking, that ain't me. That, is, that really ain't me. So how, no. how we do the things in our service of God matters. To do it at His prompting.